You're listening to Matt Walsh On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. All right, everybody, Matt Walsh on demand. Find me on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Matt Walsh blog. And uh, my new book coming out in March, you can pre-order at unholytrinitybook.com, unholytrinitybook.com. Uh, that's the name of the book, so go go check it out. Okay, so um, a, a lot of news, a lot of news, too much news, honestly, if I'm being honest. I, uh, I prefer the news cycle where you have one big story near the beginning of the week and we could talk about that for a bit and then by thursday you know wednesday or thursday kind of settles down and people are talking about whatever they want at that point but this is like there's a huge controversy protest debate raging every day and every day it's something new and it's exhausting to be exhausting for me anyway because i write about this crap for a living but if you have a real job, uh, well, that, that must be nice, actually. If you have a real job, you can just you can kind of tune it out, turn off the news, sign off, and go about your day. And I really, I think that's a great thing, and I would recommend that people do more of that. Anyway, so I want to uh, circle back to this immigrant refugee issue. But first, a couple of words on Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch, Trump's Supreme Court uh, pick. As I said the night it was announced, it is Gorsuch. A good pick. This is the the kind of uh, brilliant, incisive comedy that you can expect from me. Actually, I'm thinking of hitting the road on kind of a stand-up tour, and I figured Gore such a good pick will be my opening bit or maybe my closing. I don't know, but it's just classic material, just classic. In any case, yes, I, I like the choice, and although I really don't know very much about the guy and 99.9999% of the people in this country don't know much about him either, although... Uh, within 47 seconds of him being announced, Twitter was filled with Gorsuch biographers. It's it was a fascinating thing to behold that all of the 48 seconds ago, all these people they never heard of him before, and uh, but within but in less than a minute, they were all experts in Gorsuch. I'm not an expert, I must admit, um, but even so, I know from what I've read that he's an originalist, constitutionalist. And I know uh, from seeing the reaction that the abortion industry and abortion lovers hate him. Look, I don't usually like to take the, well, this person doesn't like it, so it must be good approach. But seriously, if Cecile Richards is afraid of a certain Supreme Court justice, well, that means he must be solid. I think if I followed that rule of thumb all the time, I would, it would never steer me wrong. So if she doesn't like him, then he's got to be good. I I just, I feel very, very confident in that. The interesting thing, however, is that um, Gorsuch has never really ruled on anything directly related to Roe, as far as I know. And he hasn't spoken much about it or at all. But we do know that he's ruled, uh, I believe, on Planned Parenthood funding 
or at least registered his opposition to it. Um, and we know he's opposed to euthanasia, and uh, we know he's, uh, again, an originalist. So all of these things together seem strongly to indicate that if, say, Roe v. Wade were on the docket, uh, he'd rule against it. Although we still need to get another conservative on there before we can even think about overturning Roe. So Democrats are already, of course, planned, promising to block his confirmation. They were going to do that regardless. But they could only do that if the filibuster is intact and there's no reason for it to stay intact. If Democrats block the, his confirmation, then you get rid of the filibuster and you continue right along. You just shove it down their throats. What really is the, da- I don't even understand why we're talking about this. Well, do you use it? Do you not? The nuclear option, getting rid of the filibuster. Do you do it? Do you not? What's the downside to preventing Democrats from interfering in the process? They'll pee their pants over it? Okay, well, what? when are they not peeing their pants? That I don't see that as a... I don't see any reason to worry about that. They're going to be doing that regardless. And people say, well, if you do that, then they'll do it. And it sets a precedent. Okay, two things about that. Number one, they already did it. So that, you know, the toothpaste out of the tube on that one. Two, we are way past the point of worrying about precedent. This is just how it is now. The precedent has been set. The two sides are bitterly divided, and uh, one of the sides, at least the Democrats, will do anything and everything to get their agenda through, and they'll continue doing anything and everything, no matter how much Republicans try to appease them and play nice with them. So forget it. Just forget it. Just continue right along. Do what must be done. Just as credit where credit's due, just as McConnell did by refusing to give Garland a vote. That was an example of Republicans saying, yeah, you know, I don't care about precedent. I don't care how the Democrats respond to this. Yeah, they'll do the same thing now if they get a chance, but we've got to do what's got to be done here. And so they did. And and I think that was, it obviously was a gamble that paid off. So I would say the same thing with the nuclear option. All right, um, moving on. I, I want to go back to this discussion about Trump's executive order, which by the way, they moved up the announcement of his Supreme court pick in order to change the subject from the executive order. But then Trump tweeted about the EO on Wednesday morning. Anyway, after the Supreme court pick had been unveiled, which brings the conversation back to the place that they were trying to get away from. They go through this whole thing to steer the conversation away from it and they succeed. And then Trump just gets on Twitter and completely undermines it. The whole strategy. Um, But on that topic, since we're still talking about it, it, there's a very interesting phenomenon that's happened. Um, It happens anytime we debate this issue of immigrants and refugees. Uh, There are are a few subjects where this kind of happens. Gun control, same thing. Um, Two interesting phenomena. One that I I wrote about yesterday, and that is the um, phenomena, maybe phenomenons, it's not actually correct grammar there. I apologize. So one of them I wrote about yesterday, that is the the very people who usually mock the Bible as a book of primitive fairy tales will suddenly appeal to its moral authority, claiming that the Bible requires us as Christians to open our borders and let everybody in unfiltered. And that, of course, is untrue. And there are problems that arise 
when someone who usually derides the Bible and has already tried to strip it of all credibility then tries to circle back around and use it in an argument favorably. You know, you can't really do that. But I already, you know, I, I addressed that yesterday. The other interesting phenomenon is um, related to the first, and that is that leftists on this subject, leaving aside their off-base theological arguments, will more commonly and mostly make moral arguments. So they appeal to morality. And um, these are the moral relativists of the country appealing to morality. Moral relativists appealing to a moral code that they obviously believe to be objective, set in stone, accessible, and obvious to everybody. But that's not the only conflict because, I mean, moral relativists will always run into this problem because to be a moral relativist means that you can never really be against or for anything. To argue against or for anything is purely nonsensical from a relativistic standpoint. Uh, You know, what does it mean to say, well, it's wrong to rape, for instance, when you believe and you have said that we all determine what's morally true for us? And what's morally true for me may not be morally true for you. And we all come up with our own code and nobody's code is right or wrong because there is no right or wrong. So it may be true for you that rape is wrong, but for the rapist, it isn't true. So to, to, to uh, object to his own moral code when it's not your moral code, well, that makes no sense. Makes no sense to do that. You could say to the rapist, it's wrong to rape. Well, the rapist, all the rapist has to respond is, it was right for me. You know, it was my truth. Maybe it wasn't your truth, but it was my truth. And if you say, well, that can't be your truth, that makes no sense. Then what you're saying is that there is a truth out there and that we all, we all don't get our own truth. And that you can judge, quote unquote, his truth against the truth and determine that his truth is wrong uh, compared to the truth. But if you're doing that, then you're not a moral relativist anymore. And you have to stop saying things like my truth. Okay. But um, this is the problem that moral relativists always run into. And uh, it's why there really aren't any or hardly any actual moral relativists out there. Because it would require you to be, you know, it would require you to essentially be in, be okay with everything. You could never object to anything. To anything. Um, that's not the only point, though. Let's look at what their moral argument is in this case. They say that these people, refugees um, and immigrants, illegal aliens, have a right to come here. And they have a right to come here because they're human beings. Uh, They have a right to come and we should allow them because it's morally right. And we should do it because it's morally right, even if it's inconvenient for us, financially straining, even dangerous. Doesn't matter. Now, they may also argue that somehow, you know, it's a illegal immigration, having refugees, all that. Somehow it, it it helps us financially, and you know, they may try to make that argument, but it's, of course it's an absurd argument, and it doesn't matter anyway. That's not really the point. The point really for them is that it's just the right thing to do. So it doesn't really matter. We have to bring them in because it's the right thing to do, and it's wrong. It's it's very wrong to turn them away. 
And most of us agree. Most of us agree that, that we do have a moral obligation as Americans, as human beings, to help the less fortunate. But our point is that the obligation must be balanced with the other obligation that the government has to protect its citizens and its own national sovereignty. So you have these, you have a few different obligations here. And as far as the government is concerned, and when it comes to public policy, the first obligation of the government is to protect its own citizens and its national sovereignty. That's its first obligation. And we're talking about right now, really, the, the obligation of the government, not of individual people, because individual people don't set policy. But liberals say that the moral obligation to allow these people to enter is so absolute, so exacting, so overriding that even to simply put a pause on the refugee program temporarily while still making exceptions on a case-by-case basis in order to strengthen uh, security procedures, to, to do that is wrong, morally wrong. We are morally obliged, even if that moral obligation requires us to make sacrifices to be burdened to be even less safe. That's their argument. And yet, and yet, they absolutely, and I'm talking here about leftists, they absolutely, completely, totally reject a very, very similar argument when it comes to unborn children. Now, I could... If somebody is, um, I, 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 I kind of say the same thing about, you know, when we talk about the environment or um, you know, on, on a lot of other subjects. Uh, if someone is pro-life, I mean, legitimately pro-life and completely opposed to abortion, um, you know, part of the pro-life movement. And they also have this abundance of compassion for the environment, for refugees, for immigrants, for, uh, you know, for just the animals, for not, not that I'm comparing animals and immigrants, but, but if, you know, and they're also very concerned about quote unquote gun violence. And so they're, they're in favor of gun control. Um, and if they hold all these views. Then I now I'm not going to I'm not going to agree because I think that if they take the pro-life argument and say, well, because I'm pro-life, it requires me to be in favor of gun control and it requires me to be in favor of illegal immigration and it requires me to uh, be in favor of, uh, you know, of, of, of accepting refugees without even screening them for security. I, I think that they have misapplied the pro-life argument in these other areas. But at least I know that they're sincere. And that what's steering them wrong is, you know, that they have a lot of compassion and love for people, but they're, they just are allowing that in some ways to override their own, you know, the, their own rational thought process. And so they're just kind of misapplying the arguments in my mind, but at least I can respect that. You know, we can have that conversation, but if you supposedly have this abundance of compassion and love for immigrants, uh, the environment, animals, uh, you, you have all this supposedly all this compassion and love all across the board for everybody except babies. Well, that is I can't understand that I can't understand. And then I can't even respect. I can no longer respect your point of view on anything because you've made an exception for babies. 
And I don't believe you anymore. I don't believe in your compassion. That's the problem. I don't believe in your compassion. I don't think it's real. It can't be real. It can't be real. If you have this cold, callous, cruel, disgusting attitude towards children, then your compassion, it it cannot be true compassion. Um, So what we, that is pro-lifers, say about unborn children is that they have a right to enter the world. They are human. And that we as parents, mothers, fathers, citizens have an obligation to make whatever sacrifices are required in order to accommodate their entry into the world. And when I say into the world, I mean, uh, you know, outside, they're already in the world when they're in their mother's uh, womb. By any definition, they're in the world. But I mean to be outside of their mothers, to be, you know, citizens with social security number and a birth certificate and everything. All that stuff that begins once they're actually born, they have a right to all of that uh, as unborn children. And we must accommodate it, even if it's inconvenient. So one of the pro-choice arguments, uh, pro-abortion arguments about how, well, we have all these quote-unquote unwanted children, and if they're born, then maybe they'll, you know, they'll, they'll be a financial strain. They'll end, up on, you know, they'll, they'll end up on the dole. They'll be in the system. Uh, schools are already crowded enough. The inner city is already uh, uh, problematic enough. So you have all these extra kids. It's going to create. And, and my, even if I agreed with all those things, and I don't totally agree, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We, we have a response. We have to accommodate that because these children have a right to exist. And so if it means if, if, if it's more strain on us for them to exist, it doesn't matter. They have a right to exist. You exist and you have a right to it also. And it, it, it's interesting that the people who complain about all oh, overcrowded overpopulation. OK, well, you're not going off and killing yourself, are you? If you were so concerned about it. You know, if you're really concerned about all those things, there, there is an easy way out. Not that I'm encouraging you to do it because I'm pro-life and I think suicide is wrong. But it's just interesting. It's an interesting thing. The people that are concerned about overcrowding this and that and are willing to tolerate the mass slaughter of humans because they don't want to be crowded. As if crowding is this like huge moral crisis. They never seem to apply it to themselves. That's, a, that's also an interesting thing. Um. But in the end, the moral claim that the children have, that is the moral claim they have upon their own lives, overrides our claim to personal convenience and luxury. It is overridden. Now, suddenly, so it's a very similar argument to the one that leftists make about refugees and immigrants. Suddenly, however, leftists reject the moral argument completely they say it doesn't matter doesn't matter women can't be forced to make sacrifices for their children period sorry end of story and that's really what they're saying a mother cannot be forced to make a sacrifice for a child sorry and if that means he dies well then he does so that's it so in the leftist view of things we can be forced to make sacrifices for refugees but not our own children Hmm. Now, you might say that I'm a hypocrite too because I hold the opposite view. My contradiction goes the other direction, you might say. Because I say, well, you can be forced to make sacrifices for your kid, but not necessarily for refugees. Uh, So that's also hypocrisy. 
but it's not. My view is consistent, and, and I'll tell you why. There, there are two reasons, okay? Um, and first, it's a very basic thing here. To reject a refugee's entry into the United States temporarily, to force them to undergo security procedures, screening, to put up a border wall, um, to require immigrants to go through a process to be here legally, to kick out the ones who are not here legally, all that stuff. That does not mean that we're directly murdering them. Okay. It, it, it's not like we're saying, oh, you can't come in and then we pull out a gun and shoot them. There were people being detained at the airports on Friday night and it was this whole big thing. The worst thing in the world. People were detained at an airport. And I think the reaction was way overblown. However, it would not have been overblown if rather than being detained, these people were t- taken to the back of the airport and shot in the head. Execution style. That would be wrong. And indeed, if the only two options were let them in or execute them, well, then we must let them in. Of course, if those are the t- only two options. But those, those aren't the only two options with an immigrant or a refugee. There's a third option. And so I'm saying, let's go with the third. But with unborn babies, those are the only two options. Either you let them in, quote unquote, or you kill them. There is no, let's delay this birth for a few months while security screening is, uh, is ramped up. Okay, let's, There is no, let's delay it while the matter is considered further. No, they're either born or they're killed. There's no third option. Born or killed. That's it unless they die of natural causes in the womb, tragically. But as for a living human in the womb, either they are born or they are killed. So, you know, sending a immigrant, an illegal immigrant, back to where he came from means putting him on a bus and bringing him back to his home. Sending a baby back to where he came from means crushing his skull and throwing his mangled body in the garbage. It seems incredibly logical that somebody could be okay with the former scenario, but not the latter. It seems insane that somebody could be okay with the latter, but not the former. It, 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 is, it is patently illogical to say about refugees, let them in because if you don't, they'll die and we will be responsible for their deaths indirectly. And then in the same breath to say about babies, kill them so they can't come in. It's just, how can you hold those two views? Second point, and this is very important. And this is, you know, a a fundamental pro-life argument that is, uh, I, I think, not articulated enough or well enough. But our obligations as individuals begin locally and extend from there like ripples. So our first obligation is to our own family. And then our neighbors, our community, our state, our country, and then the world. That's how it works. That's how human beings function. There is no global human being. We are all local human beings. You are a local creature. You can only exist locally. Uh, You're not omnipotent. You can't be in 100 places at once. You can't be everywhere all at once. We are all in families first, and then we are in communities, and that's how we live. Nobody lives in the world generally. You live in a family. And in a community. And your family is in a community. And your community is in a state. And your state is in a country. And your country is in a world. And your world is in a solar system. And your solar system is in a galaxy. And your galaxy is in a universe. 
But the universe doesn't really care about you personally. It doesn't know about you. It only cares about the galaxy. And the galaxy knows about the solar systems. And the solar systems knows about, knows about you know, the, the, the planets. And the, planets know, the planet knows about the countries. And the countries know about the states. And the states know about the communities. And the communities know about the families. And, the family, and your family knows about you. But the world itself is not concerned about you. It doesn't know you. The world doesn't care about you. The world does not know that you exist. You are nothing to the world. The world knows about these mass groups of people known as countries, and we work on down from there. So our first priority is in this circle of people who know about us, who we have been assigned to. We have been assigned to them. And it is God saying, take care of these people first. These are your people. Take care of them first. Your priorities start at step one, and they branch out for them from there. So, um, so... You do have, down the line, uh, some kind of responsibility to the world's children that is once everything else is taken care of. At that point, yes, if you're able, you ought to donate to a charity to feed the poor across the world. Uh, you know, people who are able, you know, there are people who adopt kids from other countries and, and so on, and, and that's good if you can do it. Um, if you're called to do that, uh, Food for the Poor, by the way, is a great charity that my wife and I contribute to. But first, you feed your own kids. And if your kids are starving to death because you're sending all your money to food for the poor, well, then you're doing something gravely wrong. Your charity is now deeply sinful because you're neglecting the very kids that God gave you. And you have no right to do that. You have now if you, if you have an excess of food and luxuries and you're going to take away some of the luxuries from your kids and give it to kids who, who don't have uh, even necessities, well that's a great thing. It's a great thing to do and a great lesson for your kids. But to take food out of your children out of your out of your starving children's mouth and give it to somebody else, that is wrong. It's wrong to do because that's your child. And if you're not going to take care of your child, nobody else will. That's how this works. And the only reason why we have children who need to be taken care of by, by people from thousands of miles away is that nobody around them is able or willing to take care of them. But the way that we solve that problem is by all of us, to the extent that we can, taking care of our own first. I didn't say only. I said first. So your child represents a unique and particular obligation on you because he is your child. He's not anybody else's. And if you truly cannot fulfill that obligation, and, and, and that may be the case in extreme circumstances, you have a unique and particular obligation to find somebody who will. So you put the child up for adoption or you find a family member to care for him, whatever you have to do. I mean, there's no scenario where it's okay to just abandon a kid on the street corner, even if you really can't take care of him. It makes no sense, no sense to say that it's okay to kill your child rather than fulfill your obligation, but then to turn around and say that your obligation to a refugee from Syria is so incredibly important that the government ought not even delay for a moment in bringing him here and that to support such a delay is a terrible evil. I mean, re really? You think your obligation to a person from the Middle East is greater than your obligation to your own kid? You think your obli obligation to your own kid is so completely non-existent that you can kill him, but yet your obligation to a kid from Syria is so completely overriding that, that, that we can't even have a security process in place before they come here?
It, it just it doesn't make any sense. It's lunacy. Your point of view makes your don't you see that your worldview is nonsensical. So uh, it would seem that if you argue that we have a moral obligation to anybody in the world, if you think that such that that a more that moral obligations exist in the first place, then you must, for the sake of rationality of sanity, admit that our first obligation is to our families and our children, our own children. And if it's wrong to prevent a refugee from coming here, even temporarily, and if that temporary prevention could be even could, could even be a form of murder, as some people have claimed, then certainly it's wrong to directly kill your own child. It's possible to argue that it is not wrong to temporarily prevent refugees from coming, but it is wrong to kill a child. It is possible to argue that. That's a logical argument. It is just not possible to argue logically the reverse. It just isn't. Because to argue the reverse is to first establish a strict moral code and to admit that all human beings have inherent worth and dignity, which is why we should accept refugees in the first place, and then to immediately throw that whole thing out the window by embracing and supporting the worst sort of inhumanity and brutality to your own kids. That's the thing. To support abortion is to adopt a very cold, cruel, nihilistic, Darwinian philosophy of things. It is to say, you know, the strong survive. I got to get mine. Screw you. Screw everyone. Forget everyone. Forget even my own child. Because all that matters is me and my own life, my own convenience, my own comfort, my own luxury, my own money, uh, my own time, so on and so forth. That's the argument you're making. And it, 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 is, it only makes sense in the context of Darwinian nihilism and materialism. Of course, Darwinian nihilism and, and materialism doesn't make sense on its own. But uh, you know, once you've accepted that worldview, then from there, although the worldview is wrong, you can sort of sensibly apply it to everything. But um, if that's your point of view, then you can't all of a sudden pretend to be a humanitarian. There is no, look, there is no such thing as a nihilistic Darwinian humanitarian. That can't exist. That makes no sense. You have to choose one or the other. And I know which one you should choose, but it requires you to be pro-life in every sense of the world. word. And you know something? If it helps you get to this conclusion, then don't think of them as, as unborn babies. Think of them as fetal refugees, okay? Think of them as fetal refugees. And then maybe you can care about them a little more. How about that? All right, that's going to do it for me. I'll talk to you guys next time. Akruche, salus. Godspeed.